Shall we try something a little bit different tonight? That's not what I was hoping to try. Does that sound okay, Paul? All right. So turn back to Ecclesiastes, if you would. And we'll start by reviewing sort of the lessons that hopefully uh, we took away from last week. And that has to do with the fact that in chapters 9 and 10, uh, look back there, if you would, not chapters 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. What is one of the frustrating things about life? There is nothing, nothing new, okay? And then we look at verse 11, and we see that there is nothing Nothing remembered, yep. Nothing remembered. So nothing new and nothing remembered, and all of these things are connected with that idea of, of breath or vanity or according to what we see there in, uh, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And so now we're going to look at verses 12 through 18. I'm just going to take a look here. All right, let's, uh, let's do this. So we'll pick up in verse 12. And we're reminded of who it is that is speaking to us here in verse 12. Uh, how does he describe himself there in verse 12? Okay, preacher and king. What king? Where is he king? Maybe one of the kids wants to answer that. Where is this preacher king? Where has he been king? In Jerusalem, okay. And what nation is he king over? Okay, Israel, good. So, he's the preacher. He has been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And that connects back to chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. When we take all these things together, there's really only one person that this could reasonably be, and that is Solomon. Now, what is it that Solomon is going to observe about wisdom? He starts out, and, and this is tied to the previous section, because the previous section was talking about man's work. And here in verse 13, he's going to speak of a task that God has given to men and then a work that he has assigned himself to look at all these different things in connection with wisdom. But he's turning from the broad look at all of these things to the specific look, which is what is the value or what are the limits of pursuing wisdom? It says in verse 13, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom all that has been done under heaven. Everybody's different as far as what their natural desire and inclination is, whether it's something that you really enjoy working with your hands, you really enjoy working with your mind, you really enjoy working some combination of both of those things, and they're not mutually exclusive. But 
In Solomon's case, he sought to do a lot of thinking about why life is the way that it is. And he says, it is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. We look at a phrase like that, and I think we have to ask, what is the grievous or the difficult or the sorrowful task that God has given to the sons of men? So what do you guys think is the grievous task that God has given? The immediate context would be searching out wisdom. I think if we tie it as well back to the first part of chapter 1, it's this fact that we are living a life that involves nothing new and in which nothing is remembered. And so Solomon's using wisdom to try to understand that, and he's looking at that task and he's saying, it feels like a burden. Why would I keep going through everything in life if I'm doing the same things people have always done and if when I come to the end of my work, it's not going to be remembered, at least not for very long? Why, why, why do this? And more than that, he says, this is something that God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Turn back to Genesis Chapter 3. Why is it a grievous task, and in what sense has God afflicted man with it? I think the answer is found in Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. Someone want to read that for us? Genesis 3, 17 and 19. So God, the sense in which God has afflicted us with this task is that he has cursed the earth in connection with sin. And the sense in which it is a grievous task is it's painful, it's difficult, and in light of the first part of chapter 1, it's repetitive and it's seemingly without purpose. So then Solomon gives some further observations in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 14. He says, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. I've looked at everything that everybody does, and behold, all of it is this way. It's striving after wind. It's vanity. It's, it's trying to, um, if, if you were out in the desert and you saw one of like a little mini dust storm, 
It's like you watch it, and it looks somewhat substantial from the outside, but if you chased after it and you finally caught it, your hand would pass right through it. You can't grasp it, and you can't fully achieve it. And he sums it up with a proverb in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I was working with something the other day, I forget what it was, and it was crooked. And I, I tried to straighten it out, and it got, I think it was a, a metal hook I was trying to screw into the ceiling of the garage so we could hang one of those little balls to know when the car was going to stop. Uh, when I had pulled it out of the other part in the garage where it was at, I couldn't reach it because of there was a pile of stuff underneath it. And so I sort of yanked out of the ceiling, and when I yanked it out, it went crooked. So then I was trying to straighten it out. So I bent it this way, and then it was straight on part of it, but it wasn't straight on the other part. And so then I bent it the other way, and then it was straight on that part, but there was still a little, a little curve in it. That's Solomon's point. We look at all of the components of life, and we try to understand them according to wisdom, and there's things that just don't make sense. What is lacking cannot be counted. It's as though somebody says, here is a puzzle, but I left off the edge pieces because I didn't want you to have to worry about starting with those. Or, here's a column of additions and a column of subtractions, but they're not going to be exactly matched up, but you've got to balance them out. It's, it's, it's puzzling, it's frustrating. We say, well... Life's not really that way, is it? But we look around us. Why are there things that are broken in this world? What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Or as Paul says in Romans 8, the whole creation groans. And that's our experience in, day, in daily life. So Solomon's first point is that wisdom is lacking. One of the limits of wisdom is that you can't fix things just by gaining more wisdom about what's wrong. That's our drawback as human beings. God is wise and powerful. We can achieve a measure of wisdom, but there's so much that we can't do about it. Um, there's a, a book that I, I read a long time ago called Flowers for Algernon. And in it, there's a man who uh, struggles with severe intellectual disability. And he ends up having some sort of experimental procedure. And he gains the ability, basically, the procedure turns him into a genius. But the whole thing starts to fall apart and by the time he realizes that it's falling apart he no longer has the intellectual ability to fix it along those same lines we look at the brokenness of the world and we grasp bits and pieces but we realize that no matter how hard we think about it how much wisdom we seek to achieve we can't put the whole picture together and we can't fix it even if we understand this part of it. 
And Solomon is just driving this point home. The second thing is in verses 16 through 18. Then he says, I said to myself, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. So he's looked at wisdom, and if anybody should be able to unravel the puzzle, you would think that it would be Solomon. He set his mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind. And then here's his second proverb, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. So if you understand it, but you can't fix it, then the more you know, the more sorrowful it makes you at a certain level, right? And that's part of the point that Solomon is making. And there's a variety of responses that people have to life. I was uh, reading a book that was looking at this chapter, and uh, one of the responses that people have is sort of a, a nihilism, like life has no meaning or purpose, so why? Why put in the effort? But it, then the book said, most people are not that honest. We don't want to live in a world that has no meaning or purpose, so we say we're going to pursue another meaning or purpose, and that's what we'll get to uh, not, not next week, but in two weeks, verses uh, 1 through 11 of chapter 2, which is the pursuit of pleasure. And that's the response that a lot of people have, is I'm going to pursue pleasure, and that will bring me satisfaction. But Solomon's point in this brief section here is simply this. Wisdom is not going to solve all of the problems of life. We think sometimes, if I just understood this better it would be better. But he says that we cannot fully understand it, and to the extent that we understand it, we can't change it. And then he says, to the extent that we understand it better, the more it produces in us sorrow. Which paints for us kind of a bleak picture, doesn't it? You can know it, but you can't fix it. The more you know it, the more it, it produces sorrow. You say, well, that's kind of a discouraging thing to look at there from what Solomon was saying. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is, be that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. 
And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is, not, that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So how then do we understand Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18? By understanding what comes before and by understanding what comes after. We can attempt to ignore the lesson that Solomon is giving to us and saying that we're just going to distract ourselves with getting busy or with becoming discouraged or with filling our lives with the pursuit of the acquisition of pleasure and wealth and all those sorts of things, which we'll talk more about later on. But it is foolish of us if we choose to not deal honestly with the realities of life. Sometimes we think that if we just ignore them, they'll go away, but the reality is that we live in a broken world. And the reason that we live in a broken world is because of what it says in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned. And in connection with Adam and Eve's sin, God cursed the world. He gave this task to the sons of men to be afflicted with, or in the language of Romans 8, this whole world groans under this affliction uh, even until now. It was subjected to futility by him who subjected it. And so our present experience, even though it is flawed and it is broken and it has painful moments and it has problems, it is that way in part because God is carrying out the plan that we see in Genesis 3 and in Romans 8, and as we looked at in Sunday school this morning, in Revelation 22. But Solomon is driving home the point of Genesis 3. There's thorns, there's thistles, there's sorrow, there's brokenness. Are you going to think that by getting a PhD and amassing all the knowledge on the world on a particular subject, that you are going to solve those problems? Because some of us, not all of us, but some of us, that seems like a reasonable alternative. We love to learn new things. We think that if we just understood it a little bit better, that we could, that life would be better. But you come to the point where you see, I understand a small part of all there is to be known, and you realize, I can't fix it. And the more that I know about it, the more it brings me sorrow. And Solomon brings that point home to us and wants us to wrestle with that reality because if we set up wisdom and the pursuit of knowledge and all of those sorts of things and say that that is a sufficient goal in and of itself, we will be disappointed. And although he doesn't get to this point at this point in the book, and although I certainly don't want to blunt the force of what it is that Solomon is saying here, don't trust in wisdom. It's an insufficient, it's not an end in itself. It's a, an insufficient thing to live your life for. But it does have value. 
We study the book of Proverbs. It teaches us things about how to live, how the way that life works ideally and, and, and following after God. It does have limited value for this life, so wisdom has a purpose. He'll make that point even as uh, we get to the middle part of chapter 2. But it's not an end in itself. So what hope do we find? The hope that we find is that even though God has subjected the creation to futility, creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so creation groans. And it says creation suffers the pain of childbirth. I haven't experienced that, but I've watched that. And it's not pleasant for someone going through it. And that's an understatement by many degrees. The earth itself is going through that same sort of process of pain and sorrow. But what will be produced at the end of that pain and sorrow? A new heavens, a new earth, glory in the presence of God. And that is, at the end of that section in Romans, what it says, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. We've been saved in hope. There are promises that God has made that he will fulfill. There is sorrow now. There is joy that we have now that we also anticipate. God is going to fix what is broken in this world. Our capacity to take a look at it and think about it and reason about it is going to hit a brick wall. And we cannot wrap our head around the entirety of it and we cannot fix it and it will bring us sorrow the more that we understand it, and that is supposed to do something. It's supposed to help us to see, I shouldn't rely on myself. I need God. And so when we read those words of Solomon, we could take away from that, life's hard, so give up, ignore it, Try to drown it out with busyness and pleasure and activity. And Solomon says, no, wrestle with those realities. Face them, look at them, see the horror of them, and see that God is the only answer to those things. So when we encounter those moments that remind us of the fact that we live in a broken, sin-cursed, flawed world that is groaning where do we turn do we turn away so that we don't have to look at it do we look down in self-pity and discouragement do we become distracted with things over here or do we look up that's the question that I think this passage makes us wrestle with. Creation groans. Wisdom is insufficient because wisdom shows us our limitations as human beings. 
and wisdom shows us the sorrow that is part of living in a sin-cursed world. And yet, as Romans 8 reminds us, there is hope, and that hope is found only in God. Let's pray. Lord, even in the last six months of our church's life, we have seen the nature of life in this world in many different ways. We all encounter these things on a daily basis, and sometimes we quickly move on from them because we don't want to think too closely about them. Sometimes we are just so busy with things of life that we don't stop and think, and and sometimes we do think, and we find, like Solomon, that the more that we think about these things, the more we feel powerless in the face of them, and the more we have sorrow. And yet, Lord, we ought to have hope because we recognize that you are the one who is at work now, that you are the one that we trust to work in the future, and we pray that as the burdens of life overwhelm us, that we would turn to you, recognizing that you are the only one who can help. So easy to turn to other things. So easy to think that we can go through life on our own. But our strength runs out. Our efforts fail. But as it says in the Psalms, you are the strength of my life and you are my portion forever. God, help us to grasp that truth and to hang on to it and to come back to it in the moments when we see our own inability to fix life, our own sorrow at the brokenness of this world, Help us in those moments and in every moment to look to Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.